Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free, a token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next episode of the podcast series. Today, I welcome onto the show, Paul Asianti. Okay, so buckle in people, this is a big one. And this episode has left me so happy, inspired, and full of positive energy. I think it'll do the same for you. Paul is currently the men's head coach at Trinity College, entering his 29th year. But Paul is way, way more than that. He goes way beyond his titles, successes, and what his resume says. He is a deep-thinking, caring, wise, and brilliant soul. I've observed Paul from afar and admired his work greatly, but having the opportunity to talk to him for over an hour today about a range of mental topics was a huge treat for myself. You will be able to see why his players talk about him so fondly and how he has positively influenced the lives of so many athletes, both inside and outside his athletic coaching. And because of this, his manner, his lack of ego, his gentleness, his groundedness, his caring and compassion has led to great things and great results from his athletes but it runs way deeper than this, and we investigate this thoroughly in the show. Paul is the winningest coach in college sports history. Let that sink in for a second. The winningest coach in college sport history. Paul is an expert at teaching audiences to face fears, negotiate change, and build strong, diverse teams. He is the winner of 17 NCAA championship titles in a 22-year span. Paul was also the U.S. national coach for several years, bringing them high levels of success under his reign. He is the author of Run to the Raw, Coaching to Overcome Fear, and he is currently working on his latest book called What's the Point? We talk about what his new book entails, and I would highly recommend anyone interested in high-level sports and a grounded approach to it to go and read Run to the Raw. Paul's core belief is the need to embrace fear in order to remove obstacles blocking success. We talk extensively about this topic on the show and take so many dives down so many rabbit holes, including the awesome power of now, how to maintain standards, the importance of being an empath, the win-at-all-cost mentality, mental health of college athletes, habits and behaviors of mentally strong individuals, plus many, many more deep and interesting subjects. 
this is definitely worth a few listens to. So please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Paul Asianti. Paul Asianti, welcome to the next episode of the podcast. It was really tough to have you on here, man. Uh, we just had a really cool offline chat and that was probably worth <laughs> recording in itself. Um, so I'm sure we're going to go down a really good rabbit hole today. But um, how are you doing in general? How's, how's life treating you right now? Life is treating me just fine. Um, you know, we're sort of uh, coming off Thanksgiving break here. The team comes back and uh, kind of a truncated phase of the season. We have a few matches. We go into the uh, exams. They go for a little bit of a break and then they're back on january 1st and then we get after it mm. so it's a busy happy time this is uh this i'm in my office this is my happy place amazing amazing well listen i think a good place that i always like to start is if you wouldn't mind giving a brief introduction to yourself and maybe some career highlights again when i say brief and i know your career highlights for man we mm. could go on for a while with that and what you're currently doing now so you've just given a little explanation but um yeah would you mind giving a, a brief um summary Sure. So I've been coaching for 45 years or so, and um, I've had the good fortune of being around some amazing people like, you know, Simba Mawadi and some of the guys that you know so well. And, um, you know, we've had some success, if whatever success is. And um, and I've had a really great journey, one where I've learned what I started off doing really wasn't important. Mm-hmm. And what I've come to learn is it's about the shared time with your your people and your students or the people in your business or wherever you are. Um, and, you know, that the paycheck is them staying in touch with you after they're gone or after they graduate or move on. Nice. So, you know, highlights, I, I don't really I don't look at them as highlights. You know, I don't see that stuff as important. But mm-hmm. I coached the U.S. team for about 26 years. Um, We've won 17 national championships here in 24 years. So we've done fairly well. Um, <laughs> I coached world team tennis for 10 years. So Billy Jean is a really good friend of mine. And I've had a, a, a wonderful and full and rich journey. Wow. But listen, you, you're being super humble and that's, that's you anyway, by the way. So um, <laughs> as I did in the introduction uh, earlier, you know, we are highlighted some of your career highlights there, but I'm quite Thank interested you. to unpack um maybe you as a youthful coach, was it, was it a bit of a win at all cost mentality when you first got into the the industry? And, and how do you think that's evolved for yourself then over the years? Yeah. So it was very interesting. I, when I started coaching, um, it, I didn't realize it at the time, of course, but it was very ego attached. Mm. My, what, what I did was who I was rather than just what I did. And you know, just like an athlete or you see a junior athlete in some discipline crying after they've lost. Well, that's because they were tying the result to the to the person that they are. Mm-hmm. And most of my career, I think I was tied to ego. And um, it was interesting when I started off my career coaching at West Point and I had an assistant tennis coach who was wonderful. And recently I spoke to somebody on the phone who said, I spoke to so-and-so who happened to be my assistant and immediately I had a visceral reaction and I said, Oh, please apologize to him. I think he would like me more now better. Okay. So I was very tied to outcome. And if we did well, I was very happy with myself. And, and if we didn't do well, I would, you know, put my rackets in the closet and say, I'd never play again or whatever it was. 
And it was only recently, probably in the last 10 years and after some life altering experiences, which tends to stop the train and you look mm-hmm. and say, well, what in the world am I doing? Um, that I came to realize that to be a great leader, to me, the single most important quality is you need to be an empath. You need empathy is the key. And you cannot be empathetic if you can't put yourself on the other side of the desk. And so at that moment, that aha moment for me, I realized it has nothing to do with me. Mm. And, and so it's everything to do with them. And how can you help a person? Um, I started my career coaching at West Point, and there was a plaque on the wall that sort of changed my direction. And it was a MacArthur quote, and General MacArthur, and it was, a, this may not be exact, but it's on the friendly fields of strife, are sown the seeds that on leader fields will bear the fruits of victory. To me, that meant you're going to learn on the athletic fields lessons that will make you successful in life. That was everything. And, you know, you learn how to win. You learn how to lose. You learn how to strategize. You learn how to adjust on the fly. You learn that emotion is not your friend. Mm-hmm. And then that carries over into life. You have a tough day at work. You can't go home and yell at your partner. That's you know, and we're in a society now where there's so much anger and and it's just so, so against my soul. Mm. So, um, you know, to me, once I put down my ego, um, this all became so much clearer to me. Mm. That's so, so beautifully put. And I definitely want to pull on a few little threads there. Um, as you were speaking there about the MacArthur quote, it reminds me, I only heard this quite recently. Um, it, it was um, Wellington, I believe. It, it, and he basically said something along the lines, he was watching a cricket match at Eton, right? Like years after the war. And mm-hmm. basically said the war, the war, the, the war that Britain won was was won on the playing fields of Eton because oh, wow. it was all, I, I thought it was really cool, isn't yeah. it? Because there's the whole endeavor of sport, the, the cooperation, the individualism, all at the same time intermixed. And I think it was just a, a little kind of passing quote, but how powerful it is. It's similar to the yeah, MacArthur one totally. a bit, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, a lot of the companies, I speak to companies, you, you know, often, and you'll see they're very attuned to hiring former athletes. Because they know that they know how to win and they also know how to lose. Mm. And to me, that is that is the key. I think losing is the playground of success. Yeah, really well put there. Um, and ego, really interesting. Picked up on that word there because obviously the, some of the definitions of ego, you know, it comes from Freud and ego, super ego, id and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I was lucky enough to interview um, Bart Weinheldem, if you might or might not know, Paul Paul Cole's coach. And yeah. his big, his, we, we had one whole episode just on ego, which was oh, mind wow. <laughs> we, we managed to get about an hour's worth of juice out of out of one kind of three letter word. Um, wow. and, and just for you and your journey, Paul, and again, I'm, I'm interested how you try and get get this across to your, your athletes or anyone you influence in your life. I, I assume there wasn't one fundamental shift moment that all of a sudden got you to check your ego. It was probably a bit of an evolution and lots of mistakes. So I'm curious to know, you know, if you could unpack parts of maybe some of those flashpoints that might've got you to sit back and go, whoa. And then also how you can try and help your athletes understand that as Ryan Holiday says, ego is the enemy, which is, which is a really interesting concept as well. So what, what do you yeah. think of that? Well, you know, like you said, it's bumps along the road. Um, It's generally speaking, it's not a single aha moment. But, um, you know, there were just times where one year we won the national championships and we really underachieved. And I felt so flat and I felt 
a little bit badly for the boys as well. And then I think one of the happiest moments was we lost in the national finals to Princeton. And before the ceremony where the players walked across the court and shook hands, I looked at my guys and they were all crying. Mm-hmm. And snot was running down their noses. They were making no effort to conceal the fact that they were gutted. And I realized that it was they went all in. And so all of a sudden, these big picture issues became more important to me than the W's and L's and the banners on the ceiling and national championship rings. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I have a friend who I spoke to recently who's got cancer. And I said to him, what is the what is the point of all of this? And he said, purpose. Have you found your purpose? And I realized that I, like a blind squirrel in the forest, I found my acorn. This is my purpose. And it is teaching the lessons, not, not the sport, not the, not the scoreboard, but what's the purpose of all of this? And are you, if you wake up in the day and you say, oh, I have to go to work, you haven't found your purpose. But if you get up and you say, I get to go to work, you have. And so those are the things we talk about here. Do you, are you excited when you come to practice? Can you flip a switch and find a way on a bad day to get the most out of yourself in practice? So that all has to be devoid of ego. Mm. You can't. Mm. And you, you, you talk really nicely about the awesome power of now. I think it's a nice segue to, to talk about that because for me, there feels like quite, a, quite an overlap in, in, into that if there, there might not be, but I'm, I'm feeling there's a symmetry <laughs> between those two areas. Yeah, so sure. can you help us unpack the awesome power of now? Like why, yeah. why do you lean on this uh, statement quite a lot in your coaching? Well, I, you know, that's, I stole that from Dr. Peck, so I should give him a hello there. But, um, you know, basically the awesome power of now to me means that whatever you're doing, be fully engaged. I keep using the word engagement with my players and just to say, are you here? Are you 100% here? Are you now? Every, we're human beings, so we're not always our best version. You, you might wake up and feel under the weather or whatever it is. You might be 60% of your best self. Well, then you got to give 100% of that 60. And that's the best that you can be. And and then whatever, and it's interesting working with young people because, oh, it's so hard. You know, I'm a college student. I, I'm under so much pressure. <laughs> no, you wake up in the morning. There's somebody waiting to feed you food. You go to a classroom. There's somebody waiting to teach you information. You come to practice. There's somebody standing there waiting to tell you what we're going to do today. You don't have it that hard. But what you do have an obligation to do is, in every moment, give it everything you have. And and then when you lie down at night and you put your head on the pillow, you can say, wow, that was a really good day. Now, if you can get one person to buy into that principle, they're going to become more effective. Mm-hmm. But if you can get a whole team to buy into that principle, you can create a swirl of energy that simply cannot be beaten. And so it's it's where we focus on the process and are you and listen i believe in the japanese philosophy which is that you cry in practice and laugh in competition and you know i i'll give a speech in philadelphia and i'll talk about the importance of practice a place where you know one of the alan iverson was saying man we're talking about practice like practice is important practice is everything preparation is everything if you're making a presentation to a board on friday your preparation for that is critically Mm -hmm. important 
awesome power of now is being fully invested and fully engaged in everything you're doing. Thank you for saying that. It's really, really powerful stuff. And it uh, reminds me of, of, of a couple of things there. Um, I was lucky enough to interview a guy called Dr. Martin Turner, who's a big in the cognitive behavioral therapy. And I asked him, what's the most common thread or the most common trait with high performers? And like almost immediately he turned around and said engagement. So a word that you just said, you know, when he's speaking to them, he sees the eyes following them around the room. He sees their body language. He yeah. sees that they, and it's not just a physical engagement. It's a mental engagement. Like we can all turn up and go through the motions and look like we are trying hard. But, mm -hmm. but one thing I talk a lot about is the difference between trying and effort. Trying is the body moving in space, but effort mm -hmm. is the body and mind in the same place at the same time. And it's sure. it's, it's it's such a, a good message for all of us to try and remind ourselves of, isn't it? And, you know, I'm yeah. sure you get it wrong. I get it wrong many times, but with oh, that yeah. reflective piece, we can get better at it. Absolutely. And it, and it's it's something that it's a muscle you can develop. You know, you can. One of the things um, when, when I wrote the book with Jim Zug, um, run to the roar. One of the contributors to the book was Billie Jean King. And if you can ever interview Billie Jean, I recommend you do. Uh, she is, she's the bomb. But I asked her, what are the two most important things that I need to know? And she said, number one, don't let anybody be late to anything. Just that simple. And she told a story about being at the Federation Cup and the bus was going to leave at nine in the morning. She told everybody to be here at nine in the morning. Serena Williams wasn't there. The bus left without her. Wow. <laughs> well, well Billy Jean could get away with that. I couldn't get away with that. But the other thing she said was that body language will tell you everything you need to know. That to me is so profound. And it's an onion with so many levels. Because when you become empathetic, you when you become an observer of human behavior day in and day out, you can tell when they walk in your office just by looking at their eyes, by looking at their body language whether or not they're in a good place, if they're struggling, if they're able to communicate, and you can then help them. Now, mm. it takes time for a person to trust you, right? Trust is a meal served with a teaspoon. It takes time. And so the more you can help a person through observation of body language, how are you doing? What are you struggling with? And then ask the one rhetorical question that I ask 100 times a day. What's the worst that can happen? I was re recently speaking to a hedge fund and those people are making so much money. And they, as Tom Wolf used to say, the, they think they're the masters of the universe mm -hmm. and they have the most pressurized jobs in the world. So I was standing there and they were telling me just how hard they had it. And I said, you know, I had open heart surgery. My doctor had pressure. You're going to be fine. What's the worst that can happen to you? You're going to lose your job. You're getting a $20 million Christmas bonus. Why? Because you have a skill set and knowledge and talents that are transferable somewhere else. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to button down the hatches for a few years, but you'll be fine. Yeah. And, you know, so it's all perspective. It is. It is. Um, yeah, really, really well said. And uh, the, the Billie Jean King story on the bus reminds me a little bit of, um, it was quite a famous one of John Wooden. I think when, you know, he always, I think the very first lesson he ever gave was how to put your socks on, 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 on you know, which is brilliant. Yeah. So you don't get blisters so we can have a whole season. But the bus story was, I think his captain at the time turned up, you know, with a bit of stubble, a little bit unshaven. And maybe I'm a bad example, long beard here. <laughs> but John, John had set down the benchmark of, you know what, we travel in our suits and we, we clean shaven. 
And yeah, he, he kicked the captain off the bus to go get a razor. And, and, you know, the guy didn't get back in time and the bus left. So even though the, the captain was wanting to get back on the bus to shave himself, sure. John Wooden was like, there's my standards. I, have you heard of that story? Have you come across oh, that one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, well, those, are the, those are the critical lessons. And, mm. you know, the thing about a person being late or not showing up for something fully prepared or ready means there's a message to that, which is I don't care about anybody else. Or I'm putting myself first, and that's not okay, you know. And and we obviously played and are involved in an individual sport, but essentially, everyone in an individual sport ultimately ends up playing on the team. Mm -hmm. And when you're playing for a team, you only score one point for your team, and therefore you must become a fan, a brother, or a sister to your other members of your team. And showing up late with razor stubble, saying, I don't care. Mm. That's mm. not okay. I think you, you talk about um, there's nine players on the court, don't you? You often say that. Well, what does that mean? Well, So when we play a, a varsity squash match at the college level, it's nine versus nine. And the number one players are supposed to be ranked in order of strength. And they go against each other head to head. And so, you know, in terms of the awesome power of now, we honestly believe it's nine against one. We are so engaged and there is such a swirl of energy that you just really, you can't be beaten. Love it. And when I heard that, I was like, you gave me goosebumps when you gave that speech. And I was like, yes, that's, that's the, want to unpack that. But, um, but Paul, listen, you're known as the winningest coach in college history. So let's not, not deny that. I'm going to put that on the table. But yeah. my question is, how do you keep the standards and the fire burning for so long with the players, but also with yourself? I, we've unpacked a little bit, but you know, you've been doing it for so many years and your track record speaks for itself and looks like it's going to continue that way. Yeah. Standards. How, how do you keep them? How do you, how do you maybe not let the players roll their eyes going, Oh God, here we go again. Kind of thing. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, they do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to seeing the, the tops of eyeballs all every day, Yeah, but it's, you know, it's, First of all, the winningest coach in history and all of that is somebody else keeping score and someone else. I've never seen a squash player or a tennis player or any athlete, a gymnast. I've never seen them doing what they do, holding on to the scoreboard clicker. You're not. It, that is the outcome of what you're doing nuts and bolts. It's interesting. I, I ask the same question to our players after every game. How's it going? And you know what they tell me? Exactly the same thing every time they tell me the score. Mm. I didn't ask you what this score is. I asked you, how's it going? What are you doing that's hurting him? What is he doing that's hurting you? How are you feeling? How are you moving? Tell me what's happening. Give me something tangible. It's like the person standing outside the court yelling, concentrate. Well, concentrate on what? Give me something to work on here. And so the results and all of that, it, someday when I'm retired, I'll be sitting on a lake drowning worms and I can reflect upon that. But I th really, it's about how well did you help people maximize their potential day in and day out? And, mm -hmm. you know, this will be controversial, but I'll say it. Um, and I'll probably get a lot of my colleagues angry at me. But we went 13 years without losing a match. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That shouldn't happen. It's because instead of saying, wait a minute, what's the secret sauce? What are they doing? 
people turned it into a pity party. Oh, surely Trinity must be cheating. If Trinity is driving up in their rickety van and beating these monster institutions, they must be cheating. Hmm. We weren't cheating. We were Simba Muwadi was academically qualified. Reggie Schomborn was academically qualified. Mm-hmm. They weren't getting more financial aid than they were supposed to get. So what was the secret? The secret was we started recruiting the best players around the world who were academically qualified. Well, if somebody had said, wait a minute, we can do that here. They could have beaten us. Mm. Yeah, why not? Yeah. It, it was the arrogance of the places that said, mm. oh, they must be cheating. 13 years is a long time to not be paying attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I love that. And um, I'm interested, but, but yes, you obviously recruited amazingly well, but obviously even the little bit we spoke about today, and I can imagine the rest we're going to speak about, you're creating this this big surface area, this this environment for the players to walk into. And yes, your messages might not be heard in the first term, the first year, the first two years. But with that that constant talk, that constant engagement, the constant use of building the whole person maybe the win at all cost mentality was was what you needed to balance with the players um and and i'm quite curious to, to know just on that thread the the win at all costs because you know college high pressure high stakes um you know maybe more from the big institutions and you've come there as, as you know the plucky underdogs in a way and <laughs> landed some knockout blows how do you how do you get high performance and like the best out of someone but maybe to dial down the level of the win at all costs. Because I think you would agree that if you go into a match and you want to win at all costs, that doesn't lend itself to high performance. Is that a good starting point? Oh, it's crippling. Mm. It's crippling. If you're if you're focused on the scoreboard, there's a problem. If you're focused on the, the fans outside the glass, there's a problem. I only want to see the back of a head. I don't want to see your eyes when you're playing, ever. I want, I want you that engaged. But again... I mean, let's let's not be too altruistic here. Obviously, they're concerned about outcome. And obviously, um, you know, it's important to them. But it isn't in the long run. You know, so when they come back in 20 years, they're not going to remember what number they played. They're not going to even remember the score of an individual match. They're going to remember getting st- stranded in Maine in the bus and how much fun we had or or do you remember when we, you know, whatever story mm-hmm. happened at the moment, those are the things they talk about. And so to me, it I'm going to get to coach whether we win or lose. I'm actually going to get to coach more when we lose. Because mm-hmm. when you win, you're instantly thinking about the next contest. But when you lose, the train stops. Whoa, what just happened here? You know, it's interesting. I, if I, I'm not a betting man, but if I was going to bet, anytime you have a rematch, where the first contest was very, very close, always bet on the person that lost. Okay. Because that person's been chewing on that and it doesn't <laughs> taste good. And that person really wants to get back in there. The other person, oh, I'm on to the next one. I beat you. Well, yeah, maybe it was, you know, it was 1816 in the fifth, but I, I beat you. So I'm on to the next one. Mm. So it's really about the nuts and bolts of what went on and what are you doing? And, the winning and the losing, that, that takes care of itself. Yeah. And it's so interesting, whether the athletes I've interviewed, ex-Olympians, um, whether I've heard them on other podcasts, that's what they remember. They remember the conversations with their mates on like, I had one like quite famous rower and she was like, you know, the, like falling into the lakes while they're rowing and, the, and exactly the bus trips. Yeah. She got medals coming out of her ears. And it's like, you know what? They don't like, she gets together with her friends. They never talk about it. Um how and this is kind of a burning question i think i might come back to it as we t- talk today 
how do you try and get that across to the young mind? I think we can sit here and we can rationalize and we can, you know, we yeah. live some experiences. Um, is it just purely reminders, conversations? Because I know a lot of people listening to this are of the teenage, going to college, even some college players. Thoughts about helping the young mind uh, with with that the subject? Well, it's hard hard for the young person unless the information they're getting from their um, supervisors, their coaches, their parents, you know, matches with that. You know, Johnny, as long as you gave it your best, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And then Johnny comes off the course or whatever, and the parent is angry at Johnny. Well, what did you, you just lied to your child. And so what, what has to happen, in my opinion, is that people that are overseeing the contest have to say, yeah, that was all right. You gave it everything you had. That person on the day was better than you or the team on that day was better than you. Or maybe we didn't prepare well for that. Maybe it's because you had the flu last week. What went on here? What's happening? Those aren't making excuses. Those are statements of fact that led to this maybe not perfect performance. And and so I think that is where the parenting really comes in. You know this as an elite athlete. You cannot coach a person immediately after defeat. Don't even waste your time. That inner temperature is so high. Their mind is going a million miles an hour. You put your hand on your shoulder, their shoulder and you say, ah, tough game, tough match, whatever it was. And then you come back and you communicate with that person as to what was going on. Well, that's what we need to do as adults for these young people coming along. What did you learn from this? Mm. Where do we go from here? You know, when kids come to my squash camp, I always tell them it's Sunday. You will not leave here a better player. <laughs> if that's your goal, we should just go home now. Wow, you'll, leave, you'll, you'll leave here more knowledgeable. You'll know more than you came. But we're not going to change that. Now the business of getting to work on what you learned actually begins. Well, winning and losing is part of it but it's, it can't be the most important part of it. Mm. Oh, again, well said, Paul, really glad we, we, we got that a little bit. And it reminds me a little bit of um, Carol Dweck's work, Growth and Fixed Mindset. Uh, and she talks a lot about the language that um, teachers give kids. If, if teachers are praising kids on their talent, on the awesomeness of achieving a task, they tend to exhibit fixed mindset traits, which avoids the challenge, avoids the threat. When teachers praise the children on effort, strategies, you know, process, perseverance, later on the line, those same kids want to take harder tests. They actually lean into more difficult maths tests. Oh, wow. And it's, it's a really cool study. She's been doing it over 40 years. And, and she talks about the power of the word yet. You add yet to the end of a sentence. You know, I can't beat that opponent. Actually, I can't beat that opponent yet. It gives you the process of being on a journey. And how it goes one step further is, okay, we can't control the outside influences all the time. So what's our inner voice doing? What is our, how are we putting this, whatever difficult situation through the straightener of our judgment, of our lens? And mm -hmm. I think that's quite a powerful piece, isn't it? If you can kind of, yes, get the athlete supported by their support network, but it's then the inner voice and how the athlete themselves can start to cultivate their own inner sanctum in a way. Um, basically, you know, how you talk to yourself is extremely important. And, um, you, you know, some, in an effort to be humble, some of us will, you know, say, oh, geez, I, I really screwed up there or I'm not really up to the tap. The voice that's speaking to you will imprint in ways that will ensure what you're going to be doing going forward. And you need to be, I mean, authentic and honest with yourself, but you also need to be your own cheerleader. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I think the mind, you know, they, the, you look at the greats, you know, whoever the Jahangir or, or Michael Jordan or, you know, who, whatever it is, mm -hmm. Ronaldo, did they learn this thinking or do they naturally think that way? And I think just like some people can jump higher or run faster than other people, I think they have a, a higher level of whatever fairy dust that goes on in their brain that allows them to think positively, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to get take the most out of every moment. And but would you say that's also a trainable skill? So, yes, you kind of said they've oh, got yeah. the, the natural talent. And yeah, so again, it's 100 percent trainable at the same time, isn't it? Yeah. And you really, but again, it can only happen if the person is able to communicate with you. So mm -hmm. I, I was coaching a tennis player at Williams when I first got there and he was convinced that he was genetically predisposed to being unable to win a three set match. If he lost the first or second set, the match was over. Wow. Shake okay. hands. <laughs> it took a long time to get him to say, you're going to be okay. And you, how you structure practice to deal with that moment is super, super important. And, and that's where good coaching, you know, comes into effect. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's when I have a freshman on the team, I invariably tell them I will do my best this year, but we won't really be communicating for about another year because hmm. we don't have our own language set up yet. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a different language for every person. And once you, once you have that language, once you know each other's body work, you can tell from the eyes. That's a beautiful thing. Mm. And that obviously takes a little bit of time and empath, as you said. I really like that that you mentioned that because that's, um, yeah, arguably one of the most valuable things a coach can have. And I'm sure you, you've come across this quote. Maybe you have or maybe you haven't. I think it's from the Zen Cohen. Um, it's when the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. But when the, <laughs> I love that. But have you heard the other half, which I only heard the other half the other day. So when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. When the student is truly ready, the teacher will disappear. Oh, I love that. Yeah. How that good is, is that? Because I only heard yeah, the second yeah. half quite recently. I, I'd always been semi-aware of the first half, but yeah. that's ultimately what we're trying to do, aren't we? Like as a coach, you are, you're almost, it sounds weird this, but we're trying to make ourselves redundant. We want to give yeah. the students enough of the, the buffet table to come and choose from. They've mm -hmm. got to go through their own hardships and experiences themselves, but ultimately we need to go into the background, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. There's, and that's, you know, that's the old saying about, you know, if you want to feed a man, you buy him a fish. If you want to feed him for his life, you teach him how to fish. You know, you hold on to people that you coach with an open hand. But again, if there's an ego attachment, you, you too, <laughs> I was coaching at the World Championships and we were playing a team who I won't mention. And the, before the match, the two teams go on the court for a photo op. And so they said, okay, USA and this other team go on the court for the photo. And the other coach said, well, well wait a minute, I'm, aren't the coaches supposed to be on there? And he pitched such a fit that I refused to go on the court. I said, oh, wow. Look, it's not a bit, but it was, that was him. That was, okay. oh, that is really ego, sad. ego wrapped up. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of, it's, it's, yeah, that's really interesting. Cause, cause then even, even this morning, I was, I was WhatsApping someone, I won't say who it was, but one of their players won a title on the weekend and, and it's, it's the mental coach of, of said player. And, um, yeah, kind of, I, I, I text this person and said, oh, like, well done. And, and, you know, he had not a go back at me, but it was like, why are you telling me well done? Like, even don't even tell, tell the winner well done. It's just, 
it is a very kind of zoomed out, kind of very yeah. stripped down all the ego, which I thought was really nice, really refreshing, yeah. isn't it? Because you can see other coaches in whatever sport, you yeah. know, they're the first there to be, you know, kind of making sure they have the photo with their player and, you know, sure. making, making sure the coach knows yeah. that they've contributed positively to that player winning. It's like, come on, people, like, let's, let's get this rebalanced. <laughs> to me, the coach and the athletic trainer in the facility, nobody should notice that they're there, right? Nice. If you need the athletic mm. trainer, something went wrong. Mm. And the and the coach should be so far in the background. Mm. So over the years, you've you must have dealt with some some serious egos. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm interested to know. Again, I, I can imagine you would have worked really hard, change your conversation, change the style you've done things, and I'm sure parts of it worked. Has there been examples where do you know what they just they, there's just a barrier? It's just no matter what you try to do, do you yep. have to actually accept in a certain way that you know what you can't do much more than this? No question. And of course, if you both have egos, now you know it's when the elephants fight, the natives get crushed. Just stop it. What what are we doing here? You know, it's uh, it, you you got to back off. You and and a good successful program where you're dealing with many people can absorb differences. I mean, it just, we're, we happen, I read something recently where a leader um, doesn't make somebody do something, they invite them on the journey. And so in, in, in essence, that's what happens. You, you bang heads with a person, well, we're not finding a common language. Oh, we, I have a couple of players like that now. And interestingly, when you coach international players, cultures are very much, uh, um, the dots connect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I should have expected something like this. And and then you you've got to find a, a place where you can say, you know what, we're going to agree to disagree. I'm going to I'm going to be here however I can be to help you. Mm -hmm. But in the end, I'm, I don't want to become part of the reason that you're failing. Mm -hmm. What in the world would that be? So, yeah, I've got players in here that won't listen to me. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'll say, oh, wow. So what is your coach back home telling you? Oh, how can I be? helpful to you. And I basically, you know, bite a hole in my tongue, but you know, mm. they're not here for me. I'm here for them. Yeah. And while, wow, yeah, that's a real, um, again, stripping away of the ego. And does that ever spill into, I'm sure it does into team dynamics and actually oh, that, wow. that, yeah. How do you then manage that? Because that could be a, so you've done all the right things, right? Like you've kind of backed off a little bit, you've given them space, you've invited them in all of that. Do you know, do you have to take a bit of a stricter line sometimes when you're going, actually, this this one person's actually influencing everyone else around them? What do you think on that? Well, I mean, you, sometimes it's addition by subtraction. If you truly have a person who's being toxic to the program, then there needs to be, mm. you know, a conversation. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You You have to, as a coach, I tell the players this all the time. I have only one obligation to you. You deserve to know what went into every decision. Other than that, that's it. You may not like it. We may not agree with it, but you deserve to know because hopefully I'm working with people who will someday be leading something themselves. But sometimes we just can't get to there. Okay, fine. We'll agree to disagree. But if you're going to taint the well, then we, gotta, we have to have a come to Jesus meeting because this isn't working out. And, you know, I'm an old man. We things are different now than they were even five years ago. You know, my instinct is to say when someone says why my instinct is to say, because I said so. 
do you need to read my resume? Shall we talk about this? But what? Who? Whoa, whoa! Put that down, Paul. What are you doing? <laughs> and then you have to sit and explain every because mm-hmm. this generation really wants to know why mm. and and how and um and also this generation is raised to believe that they're the center of the universe mm-hmm. and uh, you know so it's way more complicated. It's tiring, mm. um, but it's what they deserve. Yep. Yep. And it sounds like if anyone like you're, you're moving like water, as Bruce Lee would say, you know, yeah. you're finding the cracks, finding the holes, but it's, it's, it's a constant evolution, isn't it? But just yeah. on that, which I thought was interesting, again, this maybe comes from more of a mature mind that heightened self-awareness, isn't it? Like you, you hear your inner voice saying, oh, we'll just go look at my resume, go look at my proof, my pudding, but actually to have that space between stimulus and response is such a valuable asset down oh. the line, isn't it? And, and yeah, it's, we have to keep checking on it, don't we? Well, you know, the story about stimulus and response, I've been speaking to um, companies and kids, and I've got a new one that I've been using, and I call it Life Lessons Through Oreo Cookies. Okay. And so what I do is I stand up and I say, look at me, based on my belly, I obviously like Oreo cookies. (laughs) So I give every student two Oreo cookies, and I say, okay, let's put one Oreo cookie on its edge. This wafer is thought. This wafer is action, thought and action. In in the course of a day, we have tens of thousands of thoughts. Some of them are really bad. And then we act. The key is to make the cream in the cookie wider because the cream represents a gap of time. Now, take the wafers off. Now make it a quadruple Oreo cookie. You've just made more cream. So you've just lost the point. Why do I hate the return to serve cross-court Nick? It's because you've just lost something. You've just you've lost something by virtue of the fact that you're returning serve. You may have lost the game. You may have lost the spin. More likely, you've lost the point. And so your mental state is already somewhat negative. And now you're going to go for a backhand cross-court nick. So I want that gap to be wider and wider. You know, how many of you have seen people in road rage? When they're driving, they're so angry, there's, there's no, there's no yeah. gap in there. You know, um, Will Smith at the Academy Awards had no cream in his cookie. So, you know, this is one of the things we talk about creating more time between thought and action. We're seeing less and less of it out there. Well, beautiful analogy. I'm, I'm definitely going to, I've got my university squad tonight and I might be buying some Oreo <laughs> cookies on the way. So thanks, Paul. It's just an excuse to kind of chow on them. But because uh, every so often you get those like double cream ones as well, don't you? So oh, then yeah. that's that's a good one. Maybe that's a good like example. Exactly. Hey guys, look, the Oreos are doing their double cream. Maybe there's better stimulus response thoughts and actions. That's a beautiful analogy. But I think I just want to kind of stay with that thread for a second. Um, You know, dealing with the always on and highly distracted brain of the current youth, you know, it's, it's just constant, whether it's validation, the casino lottery of social media, the, yeah. the dopamine hits they're getting every moment. It was actually really interesting. One of my um, top students here, they've, they've set themselves a challenge to go 24 hours without watching a video. The, they, they literally started at like 5 p.m. one of the evenings. Guess what? The first thing in the morning, they turned a video and they didn't even remember it. It was just like, it was just an instinct to turn the phone on, look at TikTok. And again, they're trying it again and again, and they actually got a cool challenge. And I really like that. But anyway, I'm going off topic here, but no, you know, that, that this year, in my opinion, is the seventh gate to hell. Yeah. I yeah. think this is just destroying that. You know, there's snippets. Everything is now a, a soundbite, a snippet. And uh, we're so concerned with mental health now. 
in working with our young people coming out of COVID. And I believe that cell phone is one of the major contributors to that mental health. I have a wonderful daughter. She's 11 years old and she's so special. And yet sometimes she doesn't feel so good about herself. And then she'll go on Instagram and she'll see all of her girlfriends having the best day of their lives because they've taken 80 pictures and they have found one to post and she's not at that party. And then she feels badly about herself. Well, that's that we can't have that. It's poison. Eh? It's poison for the brain. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's um and we're gonna definitely talk about this a little bit more. It's I think I heard it really interesting. It's it's you know, it, it's tobacco, it's 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 cocaine for these kids. It's unfortunate. Yeah. It's like, but you're giving it to a 12, 13 year old, they don't have the prefrontal cortex, never mind a 25 to 35 year old. Yeah. And you know, like I don't want to get kind of too on a high horse here because we don't want to sound like old curmudgeons, but I yeah. definitely think it's worth a conversation because how how are we expected let's just look at a performance angle focus um concentration you know if you can't concentrate if you can't be bored for more than two minutes you know yeah. what how can you actually lock into a performance thing okay that's the one side and then the other side is our identity our self-worth is just continually being eroded because of the perfect lives of strangers on on yeah. these platforms um no you know how how do you think you get across the message that okay we can't ignore we can't tell the kids to stop looking at social media for you know the whole season how do you think you try and navigate this you might not have an answer but any any thoughts come to mind well again i'm always talking about what what where is this going to lead mm. you know and, and we talk an awful lot because you know first of all your future uh, employer is going to see everything you've been posting your college is going to be seeing everything you're posting and what is amazing to me is how the boundaries of what is right and wrong go away in the world of posting. It's like, all right, so you're wearing a Trinity squash shirt and you're proud of it. Now you're at a party and you're holding a beer and wearing a Trinity squash shirt. You can't post that. That's not okay. That doesn't represent this program. All right, now you're doing things that are even otherworldly and you're posting it. It, you know, I saw something recently of a woman filming a bull that was running at her. And she's she's zooming this bull. And then all of a sudden you see the phone go like this. It's like, get Got the smacked. hell away from the bull. What are you doing? There's a red flag right in front of you. Like, look for the red you know, flag. My God. So yeah, we've gotta we've gotta do better. Mm. We just have to do better. Do you have a philosophy in your training? Like, is it a no phones philosophy? How, how do you navigate that? Well, you know, it, it would be so, some of my colleagues do. They don't want to turn their phones off, put them in a basket. You know, to me, that's you're taking away their oxygen tent. Mm -hmm. And so what I would rather do is I would rather you show me some self-discipline. Your phone can be next to you. I just don't want to see you on it. And then we'll come out after a drill and somebody will be immediately on the cell phone and I'll say, are you investing stock? What, how is the market doing today? <laughs> you know, what are you doing that is so important? So I, we make a joke out of it. I find mm -hmm. uh, guilt and sarcasm are oftentimes very valuable. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't take the phones away from them. I would rather them develop the strength to realize that it's sitting next to me and I don't need to look at it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll go yeah. into Dunkin' Donut in the morning and there are people in line and they're, you know, and it's, it's, it's seven in the morning. What are you doing that... The, 
it's just we've lost our way on that. It's scary, isn't it? Um, again, showing you a peek behind the curtains here, but but every second weekend I do a forty-eight hours turn my phone off. Saturday morning, turn it off. Only turn it on Monday morning, and you know it's been my fifth weekend of doing it. So ten weeks in total. Thoroughly love it. I honestly, it's one of the most peaceful. I, I know it's a bit cold turkeyish, and I want to get better at that during the day times. But mm -hmm. man, the refreshments it gives you, you basically, you have to stop and smell the roses. You have to look at the sky a little bit. You have to learn to be bored. And you know what? Deep thinking, connections that you've been struggling with mentally about, oh, I need to get that done or I need to get this done. They start to correct themselves. And you know, I think I think with modern sport, if you're, if you're training so hard, if you're working on those 1% those gains, you need to give yourself space for your body yeah. to actually take up the heavy lifting and, and recalibrate itself. If you're wow. just continually throwing in information, it's, you're not giving yourself the time and space, are you? No, but boy, that I don't know if I could do that. I did. <laughs> I tip my hat to you. Right. I, I get about 400 emails a day, and the heroine in my life is someone once said to me, "Wow, you get back to me faster than anybody else that I know." Well, mm. that was the worst thing that person could have said because now it's a contest. I, yes. Oh, I get another text. I got to respond to it. If you go to bed at night and you look at the day your your uh, cell phone day. Mm. And you think of how many things that I respond to that didn't need a response. Yeah. It's just, it's just, mm. and it's almost manipulation. Mm. If I want you, Jesse, to get in touch with me, I'll send just a simple, Hey, how are you doing today? Now we're in any conversation. Yeah. I'm chop it in. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just, it's manipulative. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, please, no one, anyone listening, don't, don't initially do what I, I'm just running experiments on myself to just well, try. God bless. <laughs> Man, it's, and it's, it's that, it's that, um, you get that phantom buzz five hours in, you know, I'm convinced my phone's buzzing on the, it's like it hasn't buzzed. It's turned off. And oh, then, really? Yeah. It's like, cause that's a whole kind of thing where they've in, in like, you know, when they've um, done some, some studies on students that they have, they feel the phantom buzz in their pocket. The phone hasn't buzzed. Um, something along the lines, I think your IQ drops by 32% when you feel your phone buzz and you don't even look at it. So just the actual physical buzzing, even if you're in a task, your IQ drops by 30% and something like your error count goes up by 45% because you know there's a bit of dopamine that's just been dropped on you. You don't know what it is yet, but your brain is just tuned into You're it. Which, mm. wow. have, you, um, have you read the book from Kate Fagan, What Made Maddie Run? No. Have you heard about it? No, no, maybe I not. Haven't. It's um, I, someone recommended to me. It's, it's harrowing. It's it's uh, it's not a not a nice read necessarily, but it's um from a U a, a U.S. college athlete, um, a, a runner. Um, she lived the perfect life on Instagram, and you know everything was great. Her parents support network, everything amazing. Um, and yeah, at the end of her second semester at UPenn, she she ran off a building. She she couldn't, and it's it's the whole investigation of Kate Fagan's in the ESPN. Um, it, it, was, it was in Sports Illustrated. Yes, now exactly. I, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. You might have heard of the um, yeah. It was a really oh. famous article, and it's, I would highly recommend it to any student athlete, any coach that's involved with young people and mental health and Instagram and the world of of instant gratification. Yeah, it really got me to pause and think a lot about. Yeah, like how how we can try help these these kids in this yeah. in this toxic world. You eh? wonder, you know, you wonder when they look in a mirror, what are the image are they seeing? Because it's mm. clearly not what we're seeing. Mm. Yeah, you know? exactly. Particularly when we get into the areas of eating disorders. Yeah, you know, it's wow, what was that you were seeing? It's not mm. you. Mm. You know, we talk about it's ah, oh, this is heavy stuff, but you know, it's again, it's all helping people along the journey. Mm.
Yeah, heavy but important, man. I, I know some yeah, some people listening, if even just one person slightly takes a different path, you know, yeah. we've done our job for our lives in a way. But yeah. yeah, so um yeah, anyway, we'll move on from that heavy subject. But again, thanks for sharing your thoughts and ideas with it. Sure. Um, but Paul, listen, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, Run to the Raw. Uh, what's it maybe 10 years it's been out, possibly yeah. something like that. It's been out quite a while yeah. now, hasn't it? Um, yeah. and you speak a lot about fear, and, and it's actually a whole big subject that that I've I've had individual podcasts just on the concept of fear. Um, can we explore this topic, how it holds us back from reaching our full potential? So again, we, we, it's very broad, but what comes to mind with fear and how it holds us back? You know, it's just fear is our own creation, right? I mean, it's, it's just something where we create this big hairy monster in our minds and it cripples us. It, it causes us to take a different path. It, it, it really is something we have to come to grips with. What, and there, it's small, and then it can get to be huge. You know, one of the things that I've, silly little things that I do with my team, I make them make lists. I show them how to make a list, all right? The, make a list, and then if this thing can wait till next week, put an arrow. If this thing needs something tomorrow, put a star. Okay, now let's look at the list. What is the one thing on that list that you're most uncomfortable about? Well, the next day, let's do that first. Okay. Get it out of the way. But we don't do that. That somehow lingers on the list. And then the next day, our, we're twice as concerned, <clears throat> excuse me, about what, what is the, that moment. And so to me, the and look, it's only fight, and, fight or flee impulse mm -hmm. and all of that. We're human beings. We're flawed. But when you ask yourself the rhetorical question, what's the worst that can happen? I remember doing an interview with the New York Times when we had won, we had won 255 consecutive matches. And the person said to me, so what's going to happen when you lose? And I said, oh, well, you know, when we lose, rivers are going to run red and frogs are going to fall out of the sky <laughs> and life as we know it, we start over. But we create this thing that just is irrational. And I would suggest that most fear is is overstated or irrational get down to the, what is it what's going on so run at the fear mm. go at the problem you know what let's talk about it mm -hmm. oh my gosh i'll never forget uh, we were saying this reggie shamborn from bloemfontein south africa one of my <clears throat> all-time favorite players <clears throat> we were driving down the street and he looked at me and he said coach what will happen when we lose and I realized at that moment what a burden he was carrying mm -hmm. because I wasn't feeling that way. <clears throat> so I was completely unaware that that is what he was wrestling with. And it was just an irrational fear. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was really great to be able to address it. To unpack it with him and 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 yeah, basically de-escalate that that yeah. that that thing called fear. It's you know you, you're going to have family to go home to. You're going to have friends who still love you. You know, yeah. it's not like your life as you know it, as you said, is just going to come to a crushing end. And yeah, I just I just love that whole concept of irrationality. And and you know, like we'd never speak to our worst enemy like that sometimes. So why are we speaking to ourselves like oh, with that man. irrationality? It's isn't incredible. It? And I I I view myself as Trinity's chief perspective officer okay it's like my that. job to walk around and talk to my colleagues and say how are you doing you know it's interesting i watch my friends here at work and when the and i see how they engage in their world 
and then they go in season. Once the season starts, their eyes get bigger. Mm-hmm. The, 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 there's a clearly a different level of of tension. You can you just see it. Your body language changes. Who is this person? Yesterday, that wasn't the same person we're seeing now. All of a sudden, the pressure. Oh my gosh, we could lose this or whatever. Mm. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> I love that perspective, officer. That's great. That's really cool. And and actually, <laughs> just on that, you've said it a few times. Um, when you ask someone how are you doing? Very often the first answer is the superficial one. It's kind of, right. it's, it's the second, how are you doing that yep. you really get into it, isn't it? That no, actually, yeah. how are you really doing? Which, which I think is quite right. interesting. And I, again, I, I'm often trying to just remind myself, maybe you do as well, like going, just let's not stay with that first superficial thing that comes at us. Right. It's probably something under the surface, isn't there? Well, the body language has already told me how they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So you're doing great. Okay. That's great. So let's go, let's try that question again. How are you doing? You don't have to share with me. I mean, if you're not comfortable, it's fine. We can go with you're doing great. But I'm here to try to help you and your body language is telling me something different. Mm. And when you when you spot these athletes with fear, say it's more of a long-term thing. So you, obviously the conversations will help and you know you might see those cogs slowly turning in your favor and you see them decompressing and they, they're playing with freedom. Do any tools come to mind for more medium to long-term fear? I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw some things out there and this might not resonate. Stuff like meditation, stuff like journaling, stuff like gratitude, you know, because I'm always, when I have these conversations, I always like to think about certain tools that people can can have. So if someone's listening, go, yeah, I really have those crazy nerves and fear and, and I'm irrational. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tools you help with those athletes? Well, all of those can work, right? Um, and one thing that I do um, because I'm a neurotic mess and my therapist is constantly saying, you know, my God, I've never met a person who is so conflict avoidant. And yet every weekend you take players into competition, you know, you're just, you're just a mess. And what he has me do is something that I call shuttling. And I love this. And through the course of the day, I find that I get moving faster and faster and faster. Things are coming at me more and more quickly. And one of the things that, um, is true is people that are most at peace are at one with nature. Um, my Bible is Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Albom. And it's a beautiful depiction of how being one with nature made, it was a beautiful scene. And so what I do is maybe three or four times a day, I'll just walk out of this building and I'll just look up. I'll take a deep breath. Maybe I'll go for a drive to get a Diet Coke. I'll just get out of the environment for 10 minutes. Just recenter, re-realize the beauty around me, you know, and just say, what, what, okay, you're starting to get lost in that train ride. You're in a constant state of Doppler effect. Stop the train. Hmm. And so shuttling is now in the, the book, Tuesdays with Maury, by the end of the, the book, the poor person couldn't leave his hospital bed. So what they would do is they would turn the hospital bed so we could look outside the window. That was his little shuttle. And I find that so helpful. That's awesome. I, again, highly recommend the book. I've read it myself. I actually luckily came across it as, as a late teenager when I was 19. So it's quite a profound book to pick up at that stage. And it has always yeah. stayed with me, read it several times since. Um, so again, shuttling, is that the word shuffling, shuttling? So you just shuttling. watch shutt- shuttling your environment. You're changing your- just get out of this. Get just out go of get it. away from it. Mm. Just put it behind me. Um, just look up, you yeah. know, I mean, 
<laughs> you know, when you walk with your head down, you may find a penny or a nickel on the floor. But if you look up, you 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 become rich. There we go. Lovely. Have you, um, I'm going to give you a book recommendation, which I only finished really recently. Um, if you like Tuesdays with Maury, I think you'd love this. Um, One Long River of Song by Brian Doyle. Um, he basically, he commentates on the awesomeness of, of anything around him, nature, um, his dog, what his dog ate for breakfast and threw up on the carpet. <laughs> um, but then he'll go really profound into like the kind of the, the size of a hummingbird's heart and how often it beats compared to a blue whale. Then he'll yeah. start talking about his kids playing on the lawn. And it's all these short stories that they only, each story is about two or three minutes. And it's probably one of the most profound books I've picked up in the last several years oh, because I'll get it. Sure. it's really, really, again, I, I heard on another podcast and I, he's, he's religious, but he actually doesn't bring religion into it. Um, but he just, he's commenting on the awesomeness of what's around us from what we take as mundane things. Yeah. All of a sudden you will look at a tree slightly differently next time. I think you read this book. It's just a phenomenal. So anyway, that's just a little, yeah, little side it. note. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll email I'll it do to that you. On my, I'll do that on my next shuttle. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and it is, I think it's, it's definitely one of those. I, I, purposely I had to stop reading it kind of quickly because it was like, wow, I just you know, like almost like a chapter a day, two minutes mm. a day. It was almost like um, yeah, a little meditation on, on just little things like that, which I think is really sure. cool. Um, so I'm going to just zoom it back in for a little bit um, here, Paul, you've been really kind so far with your time, but if you've got maybe 10, 15 more minutes, I think, are you, are you okay sure. to talk a little bit longer? Sure. Amazing. Thank you. This is great. So um, I'm always interested with common themes you see with athletes, but common themes, let's talk about the positive and negative. Um, mentally, you know, put together athletes, what do you see as the big common theme? And then this, the follow-up question is, what do you see as, as the negative, the common themes that, that when athletes are mentally fragile? So what comes to mind when I ask both those questions? Well, the people that, the people that are able to continue in their athletic journeys are the people who find joy in it. It's not always fun. It can't always be fun. Sometimes it's hard work, but even knowing that that was gratifying and it was hard work, wealth worth done. You know, I find their mental state is resilient and positive and they're enjoying it. It's the kind of person who loses the first game at love and then wins the first point of the next game. And it's like, yes, now I'm coming back at you. You know, mm -hmm. that's that. Um, okay. Let's see if I can get two points this game. And, you know, very often just approaching it that way, all of a sudden you steal a game and, so it is the positivity uh, and the ability to take something positive in the moment. You know, one of the things that I try to do with our players to say, you're about to play something. Expect it to be really hard. Expect it to be. Know that it's going, you're going to be up at times and down at times. And when you get to overtime, I want you to look at the lights and say, I love this stuff. This is awesome. Nice. You know, but it's hard. It's hard to get to there. So they're naturally and inherently positive. The negative is people who are just that negative, frail, concerned for the outcome. What is this going to mean? You know, how is it going to affect how I'm perceived? How is it going to affect how I perceive myself? Mm -hmm. How is it going to how's my dad going to feel about this? I mean, we're seeing this in America now in junior squash and junior tent, junior everything where people are looking at the tournaments and saying, do I need to pull out of this tournament? That draw could actually hurt my chances of getting into a better college. And it's like, it's an ROI situation. Are we getting the return on our investment 
well, this is just a young person playing a sport. Mm. But it's the it, the stakes have gotten artificially so high. I was talking about, I know I'm going off your question, but I was on this panel with Dr. Lair and it was like 500 parents of college age kids or kids about to apply to college. And he got up and he said, he had a blackboard or a whiteboard. And he said, give me the big three. When your child was born, what was the big three? Mm-hmm. That my baby is healthy. That my baby is happy. Okay. So now your child reaches a certain age and you decide to into, put them into an extracurricular activity. What was your big three? That child learns confidence through the activity, learns how to play nice in, in the sandbox with their friends. And then he looked at everybody and he said, so where in this process did you collectively lose your mind? <laughs> That's brilliant. That's <laughs> it's like, really oh my simple. God. But yeah. you know, that we're just, we're just people who are resilient and find a meaningful purpose and enjoy competition and enjoy matching up. And then it works out or it doesn't. And they move on to the next one versus people who see this as a tightrope walk and and oh my gosh what is this going to mean mm-hmm. um it just it's that that's we have a freshman here who's going to be a really good player and in the preseason he was beating one particular teammate every time they played now it was time for a challenge match and his teammate was a senior so he's been through the battles and this guy's a freshman in the challenge match the freshman got rocked wow okay <laughs> And then in the next challenge match against a person that he should normally beat, he finds himself down. And you could read his mind. What is this going to mean? Yep. Am I now going to be out of the lineup? What is and What does all of that mean? Mm. It's just another brick in the house that you're building. Enjoy it. Yeah. Get the most out of it you can. And that might slightly link back to the whole concept of of fear because we we don't want to see ourselves as lower down in our tribe, don't we? So you've you've essentially got a tribe of people there, right? Yeah. And it's like, what what's the pecking order in the tribe? And I know you have to play obviously one to nine, but actually you're going, ooh, I see myself as a number one, or if I'm a number four, I see myself very differently. And you know, no one likes to be lower in the tribe than anyone else. Oh, what do you so think true. of that as a as a navigational tool? As because that's something you probably need to be highly aware of, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. It, it's super important. And and it, then it ties into the other thing of you're going to score the name, same number of points for this team as the number one player is. And so you've got, to, you've got to accept the fact that my contribution to the team is going to be my contribution to the team. Not, oh, whoa, I'm way down in the lineup. And uh, I, I'll never forget, I had a young man on our team who um, he was a good player, but he wasn't a great player. And I remember going to his country club to give a speech and members of the country club were coming up to me and saying, well, isn't it great that he's playing number four on the team? Well, he wasn't playing number four on the team. They weren't even being told the truth. No, no way. But but that shows you how, not only how I see myself, how I'm seen in the community, how am I doing, you know, it's, that's too much. And it's not, Mm. yeah, it's not helpful to, your ability to play a drop shot under pressure. Very true. Very wild. That's that. That's quite profound, isn't it? Um, I'm sure you have. Have you seen King Richard? You know, the Will Smith film? Yeah. Like, well, again, I was really torn when I watched that film because just really quickly, personally, it's like, 
okay, I understand that there's like this drive and passion, but the messages were really mixed. Yes, he wanted to educate his daughters, but he wasn't letting them play in the junior tournaments. What yeah. did you think as, as a very experienced coach? I know it was Hollywood and they may be, you know, over-exaggerated certain parts, but mm-hmm. if, if, if another coach was to see that or even a player going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my life like that, do you think that's a good way? Not so, such a good way? What do you think? Well, I know Richard and I, you know, I, and I coached against the Williams sisters in world team tennis. So I know them pretty well. Um, It's to me, it's amazing that they turned out so well as people. (laughs) Let's take the sport piece out of it. You know, it's, it's, we see this at the Boletary school or whatever junior program. Now, you know, there's a young Russian that at 13, the whole family uproots and goes to Florida to 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 do this. What if it doesn't work out? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, he had a plan. That plan worked out. Awesome. Well done. But there are a lot of broken down BMWs on the side of the road where that plan didn't work out. But we only get to see it in that movie. Exactly. I, I think it's gotta be reasonable. There's gotta be a reasonable approach to things. And there's gotta be don't you do this in your life? If you want to make a decision about something, don't you always work backwards? Where do I want this to be in five years? Now let's work backwards and that will help me decide what decision to make now. Mm-hmm. What if that didn't work out for them? Mm, exactly. You know, Confirmation me, bias, isn't it? Yeah, we, we, we hear those success. Again, well, you said moving Lionel Messi, you know, left Argentina yeah. to uproot to Barcelona at such a, and again, great, amazing, greatest player that's ever lived. But yeah. what about the 1,500 others that yeah. almost did exactly the same and followed almost exactly the same path, a bit of unluck, a bit of an injury at the wrong time, a bit of a yeah. girlfriend at the wrong time, boyfriend at the wrong time, all of a sudden, whew, yeah. the whole thing's changed, changed, isn't it? You know, and so the the, the common sense approach is is the safer approach and it's easy to get lost in some some junior coach says you should not have your child play these five other activities because this could be the second coming of Messi. well who's what is that coach really interested in Mm -hmm. collecting all that revenue that you've been paying to five other coaches it's you got to be careful you got to be careful yeah, well said, well said. Um, and yeah, there, there was that great clip. I don't know if you've seen a Roger Federer being interviewed at the US Open quite a while back. And they they said, oh, Roger, you know, what advice would you give to young aspiring tennis players? And the first thing he said, play other sports. I was like, yeah. yes. And I don't know if you saw it, but he said squash. Like the first yep. sport he said, he said, play squash, go skateboarding, go ride your bike. I'm like, yeah. yes, because yep. he has got a squash background, as you probably know. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah, which is really interesting. I think it's super important for the young ones to be exposed to as many different things as possible. And then let their passion determine what path you're going to go. Not because some junior coach said this potential is so great. Again, going back to my wonderful 11-year-old, she loves to sing. She sounds like Janis Joplin. It's like nails on a chalkboard. We support her singing because she loves it. It's amazing. It it may not go anywhere, but she loves it. Mm. That's so cool. I like that. <laughs> and obviously, well, maybe don't take Janice's path because that was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she had a very interesting life, but yeah, maybe yeah. not one to aspire to. Um, listen, yeah. Paul, I think one of the nice places to close, Um, you mentioned to me your new book. You're working on a new book. It sounds super exciting, super interesting. Are you able to share the title with the listeners yet? Or can you give us a flavor of what it's about? Yeah, so I'm working on a book um, with a colleague and it's entitled, What's the Point? And 
And that is essentially what we're talking about. Why are we doing what we're doing? You know, and, and is that going to ultimately bring to us real success, which is inner peace and happiness and a feeling of, you know, I've done okay. And, and that's sustainable. You know, my father was not of what you would call a successful man. I mean, he, he was, he was fine. He worked in a factory and he did fine, but that man could walk across a grass field and not leave footprints. He was such a gentle soul and everyone he touched around him was just better for it. And so in this book, what I'm focused on is that I'm concerned about this generation because they're not being given enough ownership in their journey. The result of which is they're not failing. And you cannot be resilient if you haven't hit the ground. There's no place to get up from. We see kids coming to college now who look more put together than they've ever looked before. They look perfect. And the first time they face adversity, they fall into a million pieces and then get a special accommodations for exams because they have an undiagnosed ADHD. You know, it goes on and on and on. Really just let them fail and then let teach them what happened, why that failure happened, and let's be better going forward because the world is hard. If you haven't learned how to get up off the ground, how are you going to succeed in life when when t- things get tough on you? You know, it's it's. I think about my little child when she was walking down the hall in a diaper. If she fell on her bum and I went, <clears throat> she would cry. If she fell on her bum and I went, yay, she would get up, wipe herself off, and walk away. I love we that. have to let them fail. Mm. And is this targeted more than at the parents and coaches to start with? I, I'm sure students and, and student athletes would really get a lot out of this, but is that who the demographic you're trying to initially speak to, I suppose? I suppose first off, this yeah. is to the parents. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds really good. Um, and again, without putting pressure on, when do you think it might be dropping? <laughs> yeah, it might it, hope we're hoping for maybe at the end of the summer. Okay. Amazing. Well, yeah. good luck with that. I hope I'm Thank sure it's gonna be a real success knowing about your writing in the past, knowing the conversation we've had today. Listen, Paul, this has been an absolute treat. I've I've drunk from the energy cup massively today. Um, I'm gonna go after like a 10k run to just get my energy out of this. This has been really, really insightful. Wow. So thank you so much, man. Well, you know, the key to these um, podcasts is the person asking the questions. And you you clearly are a very highly evolved human being. And, uh, you know, I didn't know you well before this, but Simba was right. You're, you're very, very special. Oh, very sweet to be. Thank you so much. And yeah, a big shout out to Simba for connecting us, man. And yeah. listen, I know you, you've seen some of my work on squash skills. I've seen some of your work. So I think there was this mutual squash uh, love and understanding across the oceans. Um, and, and again, I always like to finish with this. Where can people find you? I'm sure people are going to be super interested. Um, I know you've got a website. Is that the best place to contact you? Or where can people find you if they want yeah, to speak yeah, to you? Maybe? Just, um, you can go you know, to the Trinity webpage. It's you know, paul.asiente at trincal.edu. Um, you can call me anytime, <laughs> you know. We won't whatever. give you a number out there. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah, we don't have to do that. But I'm easy, I'm, I'm, I don't move very fast anymore, so I'm easy to find and easy to catch. <laughs> oh, man, Paul, you've been absolutely treated. And listen, when the book comes out, I'd love to have a follow-up because I'm sure. sure there's so many avenues we can unpack with that. Sure. And you've sure. been an absolute delight today. So thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you. My, it was truly my pleasure.